Hello, and thank you for joining Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. My name is Ashley Burrell. I'm the Secretary of the Board for Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. We will be producing monthly podcasts featuring women of color in the peace and security field. So please visit WCAPS.org regularly for more details. everyone. I'm so excited to be here. My name is Asha Casperi and I'm part of the Board of Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security as well as a Defense Council for Truman National Security Project and I'm so excited to be here to help launch our first event. I think this is the perfect place to have this. Uh, I told Dr. Jenkins plenty of times, I think we have to have a Truman. And one reason remains because of the symbolism of it. Truman National Security Project is symbolic of supporting progressive values. They've done a great job for many years uh, since the founder of uh, Rachel Kleinfeld, who actually thought of, okay, we need a cohort to start something that supports progressive policy and bringing the new generation coming up. So as part of our mission, with YCAP, I feel that this is the perfect place because we do support a very important pillar that falls under progressive policy, which is including women of color as part of the national security cohort. We will find out today why that is so important and we have so many important messages, experiences, and people to introduce you to this new fine community and excellent organization. So uh, thank you so much for coming out. I really appreciate it and please enjoy the rest of the, the time here. Hi, my name is Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins. I am the founder and the president of the Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. And the reason why we're here is because for a number of years I've been thinking about the fact that there are not enough, in my view, women of color who are part of discussions and debates and ongoing concerns about issues that really affect women of color around the world. So many things where you're talking about climate change, where you're talking about food and water security, where you're talking about all these issues, infectious disease, whatever it is, are affecting women around the world uh, and women of color. And yet you don't see enough women of color on panel discussions, writing blogs, doing articles, but just being part of the debates that they should be. So this is something that I've wanted to do for a number of years. I was in the government, so I didn't have much time to think about doing it. And as soon as I left government, I decided to think about why don't we pull something together and really think about how we can increase the voice of women of color in all these issues related to peace and security and conflict transformation. So that's why we are here, because we want to launch this event and launch this initiative. It's actually only a month and a half old. We just got a 501c3 status a month and a half ago. our first public event and it's great to see people around the room who I know, people I've known for years and uh, have been mentors to me uh, as well. So this is great to be here to make some new friends, welcome old friends and we we'll see how we can work on the process together. I very briefly, because I really want to focus on the panel, these great women who are here, I just want to say very briefly that there's a number of things that we're going to be doing in the next year. I just want to highlight a few. In addition to the launch, we're going to be partnering with a number of like-minded organizations to do programs and new activities. We're planning something in, at the UN in March next year, and, and so stay tuned for that. But we really want to work with other organizations who also want to promote voices of women of color in areas of peace and security. We have established a youth ambassadors program, and you'll be hearing more about that later on this evening, and so we're really excited about having young people and young women of color who can be part of these debates, and, and I'm encouraging them to get out there, write things, write blogs, 
write articles, travel, and be involved in these discussions because we really need to start at a younger age and really get out there and do these things. We're going to be establishing an advisory group, which will help the board members and, and giving us some advice on some of the things that we need to be doing and should be doing. We have a number of substantive areas, and some of you may have seen the list outside. We have a number of substantive areas that people are working in. We'd like to get some leadership in some of these areas and start developing some discussions and some ideas and ways in which we want to get involved in some of the debates. And the list is very long because there's so many things going on in peace and security, but we think that there's women of color who are involved in all these areas. We just have to find out who we are and get our voices out there. We're going to be doing podcasts and webinars and they're going to be on the website. So we already reached out to a number of you to be a part of our podcast. If you want to do a podcast, if you want to share your expertise, please let us know. We'd be happy to have you do one of our podcasts. We have art. I have a part of the website is Peace, Security, and Art, and you see some of the art around the room that has been done by one of our young ambassadors, Joanna Campo, who's also on the panel. She has been very generous to do this art and provide the proceeds to the organization. I already see a couple that I'm going to be walking away with, but she's doing prints from <laughs> But this is just the start of uh, what we want to do for our organization. We want to show that women of color do a lot of things that are important in terms of peace and security, and art reflects some of that. So that's just the beginning of some of the art type things we want to do for this organization. We want this to be a resource. So many times I have people come to me and say, we want a woman of color to be on a panel. We don't know who the person is for all kinds of issues. This is going to be a place where people can say, we know that there's a woman of color that works on a particular issue. Can you recommend somebody who could be on a panel for us? We want to have that so that people can reach out and say, we want a woman of color on a panel. We want a woman of color to write an article, or, be, or do this, or do that. And we want to be a resource for anyone who wants to bring in our voices, which I think is important. We encourage you to join the membership by going to the website. We also have the cards that we have given out. Please be sure to fill those out and drop them off in the bowl before you leave because you want to make sure that we all stay with each other. We're going to be working on a advancing opportunities for women of color on the website. We're going to be putting things up if there's something going on. For example, a lot of times it's going to be a discussion and they're looking for people to do abstracts. Sometimes we don't know that's happening. So we're going to put up on the board on the website if there's a bit going on and they're looking for people to be a part of the discussions. We want to get that information out there so that you can know that that's happening. We have a, a hashtag for the night. It's WCAPS launch. So please take photos and use the website. We have all the online forms and I'm learning all this stuff, you know, about <laughs> Facebook and Twitter and how to use all of that. We have all the forms that you need we have available for you. We're going to be doing a historically black college, university, HBCU effort. We're going to be reaching out and see how we can bring more women of color from the HBCUs as part of this as well. So that's just a very brief overview of some of the things that we're planning. We had a really good discussion with the board today about the next steps. Now that we've had the launch, we actually get to go out and do things now, so we're really excited about that. I can actually say that yesterday and the day before yesterday, I was at the Biological Weapons Convention event in Geneva. It was the first time that we had a WCAPS person doing something. It was great. Before the launch, we were part of the discussions and the issues of biological security, biological weapons issues. So we have started to move out. So our area of peace and security is hard security, but it's also the other things that we are very, very, very concerned about. 
So I think I've taken up enough time. Sorry to be so brief. I did want to give you just an overview. And you can stay involved with everything. Join the membership. Check the website. Check the Twitter account, the Instagram, the LinkedIn. I'm sure I forgot something um, that we also enjoy. People know all this stuff. And please stay involved. So with that, I'm going to ask my colleague, Ashley Burrell, to introduce the panel. I'm Ashley Burrell. I'm one of the board members. First, I would like to introduce the moderator, Krista James. She's a WCAPS board member, and she's also has 20 years of public health experience and extensive background in program planning and evaluation. She's currently the department head and associate professor of graduate public health at Tuskegee <coughs> University's College of Veterinary Medicine. She has also maintained a successful legal practice that focuses mainly on the areas of civil rights issues. And on our panel, Asha Castleberry is a board member. She's the adjunct faculty professor at Fordham University, and she's a member of the Chile National Security Projects Defense Council. She's a U.S. Army veteran. She served in Iraq and Kuwait, and she's the captain of the U.S. Army Reserves. She is a new Leaders Council Fellow, and she was chosen as one of Diplomat Courier's top 99 of 33 foreign policy leaders in the 2015 Group 100 Top African American Rising Leaders, Asma Latif. She's Director of Bread for the World Institute. She's responsible for implementing the Institute's analysis and education on policy issues related to U.S. and global hunger, malnutrition, and poverty. She has also been involved in efforts to establish and support the scaling up nutrition movement. She has more than 20 years of experience in public policy and extensive experience in developing and implementing policy advocacy strategies. Layla Hassan, she was sworn in as a Foreign Service Officer in 2010. She currently serves in the Department of State's Operations Center as a watch officer. She has served in the Bureau of European and Eurasian <coughs> Affairs Office of Policy and Global Issues, where she was responsible for countering violent extremism. She also worked in the Office of Countering Violent Extremism, and she was a political officer covering CDE and human rights issues at the NBC of Brussels from 2013 to 2015. She started her career with the Department of Defense as an Arabic language analyst focused on Middle East and counterterrorism issues. Janelle Roberts is currently a policy assistant with the Simon, excuse me for my pronunciation. Scott. Okay, Scott <laughs> Center for Prevention of Genocide where she engages policymakers in the executive branch, Congress, and foreign capitals to prevent and respond to atrocity crimes. She previously served as a legislative and research assistant with the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and she started her career as a Donald Payne Foreign Policy Fellow. Nicolette Lassant is Executive Director of Healthcare Ready, a nonprofit organization in the wake of Hurricane Katrina to ensure that the catastrophic breakdown in patient access to healthcare would never happen again. She leads the organization's efforts to build greater healthcare preparedness and response efforts in coordination with the public and private sectors. Prior to this position, she served as a foreign affairs officer at the State Department in the Bureau of Economic and Business Affairs. And Camille Wadrup Allen, she's a space scientist, rocket engineer, international think speaker, writer, educational leader, and science ambassador whose accomplishments in the field of space exploration have been extraordinary. In the highly technical fields of science and engineering, where women are in the minority, she is one of the most recognized women in aerospace engineering and one of the few women of color to serve in a senior technical management position at NASA. 
Joanne Ocampo is currently at Georgetown University's Department of Medicine, Division of Infectious Diseases, as a project director for public health informatics. And she's also the advisor for the Norwegian Institute of Public Health, Department of Zoonotic Food and Waterborne Infections. She actually works as a Global Health Security Agenda Consortium leader where she mobilized efforts of the Next Generation Network as its inaugural coordinator from 2015-2016. And she was recognized as one of the most influential Filipino women in the world by the San Francisco-based Filipino Women's Network. And that's our panel. <laughs> Good evening, everyone. It is an awesome pleasure to have as our guest these panelists who've heard their extraordinary works. And as a way to kind of get everyone warmed up, I know there's a lot of questions that we all could ask about all the myriad of things that they do in Peace of Security. We're going to have them all respond to one question in common to start off so that we can get um, a general feel for our board. And then if you have questions, especially for those people who are joining us through social media or on our conference line, if you have a question out there in digital world, please press one on the phone and then the moderator will open the line up so that because you're muted, muted now and she'll be able to take your questions so that we can have, add it to the group. Also for the people that are here with us, your cards, you have an opportunity to pick up questions or things that you like for the panel to talk about as well. Please feel free to write those down and pass those to um, any of our board members and we'll make sure we can get to your questions um, during the Q&A. So without further ado, I'd like to ask all of our panelists to respond to the following question. How does the integration of members of minority communities into issues of foreign policy, peace, security and conflict transform and tra I'm sorry conflict transformation impact US policies and we'll start on the far end <laughs> I think and looking at a specific aspect and that is sort of the importance of that integration yes. uh, in terms of how it affects not just US policy but I think in general policies related to, to these communities I think the most important part is that notion that the field for a lot of minority women isn't a, an abstract notion of a field. Yes. To me, personally, there are many situations or contexts where I theoretically look at it as a field and I'll apply analytical skills and do all that I was trained to do to look at these things. But in the back of my mind, I think a lot of times about my family, about friends or relatives that used to live in similar contexts or that are still there. And I think that is an important aspect to consider because when it comes to implementation of these policies, I think having that contextual understanding is of utmost. Thank you. Yes, I will echo what Joanne says. I'm from the Caribbean. I was born in Trinidad and Tobago. So there's so many people of color who belong to the diaspora, right, who are from all over the world, whether it's the Caribbean, across Africa or the Asian, pan-Asian pan countries. And so it's so important to have their voices represented in forming uh, US policy, because then they can bring that sensitivity, they can bring that context to the discussion, and it's not people who don't even understand what those cultures are like shaping these policies. So it's really critical. From my vantage point, there is no such thing as a single American. If we think about what American culture is, 
it's inherently diverse. But if you look at how policy is formed and those that are shaping policy, that diversity of America does not get reflected into where the power of, and the shaping of policy ultimately lies. So from my vantage point, having that integration into U.S. policies means that policies that are formed in all levels of government, in all of the different focus of power where we operate, actually reflects the values of the country we are in and the countries that we seek to serve. Thank you. Uh, I believe I'm going to echo much of what has been said. With that fear in mind, how about we add the second question and the second answer to that? So we can answers. What are the potential impacts of those voices being absent? That's a great question. One of the reasons why it's so important to include not just people of color, but women of color in particular, is that it's one thing to teach an individual a new language. It's one thing to teach an individual about the history of a particular country or a particular people, so to speak. But it's necessary to go a step further if you're talking about enacting policies that are going to affect specific communities. And you need to have someone who has been rooted in those communities or at least has the ability to empathize and connect with those individuals. And I think that when those voices are absent, you also have an absence of innovation as well as empathy. When you have a group of people in one room who have relatively similar experiences, and I will be frank, I think that national security, foreign policy as a field can be very a very difficult field to enter into. And in certain cases, you do have people with some similar experiences who are more easily able to, to come into this field. And so when you have a mixture of communities, you really do have varied experiences and perspectives that, quite frankly, the old boys club, so to speak, does not have. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for the invitation, first of all. And I, I do want to say, um, first, that I'm here as a State Department uh, employee, but I'm here in my personal capacity, so just put that caveat out there. policy formation and policy implementation, it's very important to have a diverse audience, a diverse staff, a diverse diplomatic corps. For us, we're overseas most of our careers representing all of you. And it's very important that we reflect the diversity that we know is part of the United States. And so when you have different faces out there representing different values, different American values, of course, but very different religious backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, racial backgrounds, it makes us stronger, not just as a diplomatic corps, but also as an American society. And, and representing our image abroad is one of the most important things that we do uh, as foreign service officers. And I'll just give one quick anecdote, if I may. When I was in Embassy Brussels, as Ashley mentioned, I worked on countering violent extremism. And one of the things that we did was working with countering Islamophobia across Europe. And that's something that we face here in the United States very much. And I never really thought of the impact that being a, uh, somebody, a daughter of an immigrant from a Muslim background, serving in this capacity might have. But I was at an event working with young Muslim activists. And they were trying to come up with ways to counter uh, Islamophobia and didn't really understand what they could do, that they saw their host, you know, they weren't host governments, that they were third generation, they were called immigrants. 
I don't think there's anybody here in the United States who has a third generation who consider themselves a new immigrant to the United States. And one of their group leaders told me in front of these kids, and boys and girls, and they said, well, you're, we see you as a role model. And that didn't, I mean, it was something that just hadn't even occurred to me. And they said, well, here you are, your dad came to the US, and now you just, you know, 20 years later, are sitting as a diplomat representing your government. And that's something that these kids here in Europe, Muslim immigrants whose grandparents came over, that's not even something that would cross their mind. And so you just sitting here at the table with them gives them the possibility to dream of a different future. And that was something that well, I will take with me forever. I think it's something important just to remember that just by being from a different background and working with people of different backgrounds will always have an impact in, in broadening people's perspectives. Awesome, thank you. I suppose it goes without saying that we are all uh, around this table and in this room very multidimensional. In, and so we've got many facets to the way we look at things. I think that experience, you know, either being a woman or being a woman of color or, or a religious experience, as you live through that in your life, you do come across barriers, boundaries, people say you can't go much further. And I think in the work that we do, and I work very much on food security, hunger, development issues, you really do begin to understand and can put yourself and have experienced being left out of conversations. And so, you know, there are things that you understand and can apply as you look at the policies that you're working on. So I think the diversity around in, in any conversation will lead to better decisions, will lead to um, more nuanced policies. We'll raise issues, concerns that may not otherwise be raised, issues around rights, empowerment, discrimination, and barriers, real barriers. Um, one of the issues in uh, food security, uh, women around the world do are very active in food security. Most of the smallholder farmers in the world are women. And unless you really understand all the barriers, the pressures, the time pressures on women, and how to help them overcome those barriers so that they can be the most productive farmers or in their livelihoods, you're not going to get that policy right. And I think having that diversity of perspective and you know just living it you know all of the the issue of time for example and unpaid responsibilities that women take on how does that play out when they are also trying to earn a living <coughs> these issues are there's a lot of now hard evidence that this, these are economic issues that um, if you, we don't tackle these issues we're not going to succeed in reducing poverty or, or um, promoting economic development. But it's amazing how hard it is to convince people to tackle these issues, to design programs, to address the barriers that women face. And I think it's important to get that in the absence of women at the table, raising some of these issues and a critical mass of women at the table, the voices are not heard. And so it's really important I feel that, and I really value this conversation and the effort that Ambassador Jenkins is putting, because I think it, it is going to require a critical mass of voices that push on, this, on these issues. 
Yes, thank you. I'm very passionate about this issue because one thing I've seen it with my own eyes as far as executing foreign policy, it, there's a need for women. And when we don't have women as part of the strategic, operational, and tactical level in terms of integrating gender-based programs or programs that are often not come from some of our male colleagues, we're missing out as far as resolving some of our top priorities, our national security. As a military officer, I've seen it with my own eyes where women can be an asset and can provide excellent expertise in the field of work, but it's not there. And sometimes we're not empowered to do so as well. But I've had a unique experience where I worked with a lot of male general officers that intentionally used me to speak up about some of the stuff that I recommended from all my male colleagues. And I didn't understand in the beginning, but now I did it's because they wanted to integrate a different perspective. And it was needed because in a lot of these conflict zones that we're in, as far as Iraq, Afghanistan, Yemen, Syria, 80% of those people on average are women and children. So of course it makes sense that we need policies that reflect that, that need to accommodate women and children's interests. So, of course, we need more women on the top to make those decisions. That's why I'm really uh, in support of UN Resolution 1325. And we saw that under the Obama administration when Hillary Clinton was there and went all the way down to uh, Ambassador Rice. Because of those women, they were able to promote 1325 and it made, made a lot of sense to us. But I think moving forward, there is challenges ahead, but we still can make a difference. Thank you all for your um, comments. And Asha, based upon the last thing you said, I want you to help educate our uh, audience as well as the people that are listening online about 1325 as well as respond to, because I think it's not as important as it is to know, understand where we are and where we can go, the journey is also important. So for those people that are coming up and they don't understand how as a biology major or even as an art major, they might have a role in this process. If you could talk to us about who your role models are or who they were and also educate us a little bit about what 1325 means. Yes, it's uh, Advancing Female Leadership in UN Peacekeeping Operations. And uh, it first came out in 2000. The uh, legislation was introduced at the UN Security Council back in 2000. Now it's, you know, 17 years later. There's been a little bit of progress, but it's still an important piece of legislation that the UN is extremely committed, despite the fact that we have TCCs or troop-contributed countries or police-contributed countries are slowly providing towards this effort. But I think moving forward, it's an excellent platform to look to as far as what we could do as far as the United States and, and you know, as far as increasing the number of women in peace and security issues and not only having them a part of that effort but take on the leadership because as a result of that you gain a lot in terms of peace and security. So we do see that when women are in charge we have more access okay, to a hostile environment. We get more out of the country. We are sometimes better thinkers, uh, not thinkers, but we're good at you know dipl diplomatic efforts. You know, we just bring on a lot of assets that are not often talked about, and we don't know ourselves that we have it. So that's why that's something that needs to be known and get more people or women involved, especially. So who are some of your role models? So my role models, mm -hmm. Dr. Jenkins. <laughs> 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 uh, Dr. Jenkins, Alan Albright, Susan Rice, Condoleezza Rice, I like them all on both sides. <laughs> because they, at the end, despite the fact that they have come from different areas and came from, you know, a different life, they all came across the same challenges and were able to overcome it. And that's one reason why I look up to them. Okay, mm -hmm. wonderful. And I will 
ask us to go down the line. Anybody who wants to volunteer their role model? Yes. I'll actually jump in on that because you also made a point that I think is really important about looking at regardless of what you major in or yes. what you know what you study, the opportunity that piece of security plays. I didn't plan on being anywhere near this. I actually um, am a chemical engineer and I have a PhD in infectious disease pharmacology. This is not what I plan to do. I plan to be in academia, in my little bubble, in a lab, doing some clinical trials, and literally just being in my bubble. And what I realized was that even in that space, the things that I thought I was avoiding by being in a safe space of the ivory tower was still there. And I really looked at going into science policy as a little bit of an outlet and an opportunity to escape some of the things that I saw there or at least feel more fulfilled as I was doing it. So for me, having that background that was non-traditional in the space was really my true asset. And I got to the State Department really doing health and trade policy and truly around the time of Ebola, they were running around trying to figure out where there was an infectious disease specialist that could have helped figure out the role of the State Department in the response. And I, I'm not kidding when I say someone was in a meeting and they were like, no, there's this girl in the economic bureau. I and that was, that was what brought me up to the secretary's office as a senior advisor on the Ebola response. So something that otherwise would have been looked at as, why are you at the State Department exactly, was the reason that I actually had that opportunity. But what was cool about being at the State Department, and I'm gonna talk about her like she's not in the room, was at the time where I was there during Ebola, there were amazing women, period, but the dopest women of color in the State Department. And it was amazing to see Ambassador Jenkins and Ambassador Lisa Williams and Assistant Secretary Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield. These were the women that I just, I got to see work, right? And what was amazing about that, I reported to Ambassador Nancy J. Powell, the most decorated foreign service officer, five-time ambassador, holds the rank of a five-star general. And this woman is driving a Prius to work every day, you know, just super laid back. But what was cool about that was I didn't come into this space seeing only one model of leadership or seeing only one style of how a woman in peace and security manages her, her role as a leader. And I think that was so vital to be able to see how they had different styles, you know, how their body language changed when they were, you know, about to put the hammer down. Just all of them. <laughs> you know, you, you see observed, but it, it didn't feel like it had to be one particular mold. And for me, that was so critical as someone who came in from a non-traditional field. Awesome. I actually have something that's along the lines of what you were talking about, which is amazing. But one of my role models is Linda Etten, actually. And one of the reasons that she is my role model, in addition to her just being an amazing person, is that her career path is so fascinating to me. She started off in, I think I can say this now, in intelligence and defense. She then spent some time advising as part of the National Security Council. She was most recently very senior uh, deputy assistant administrator for Africa at USAID. And talking about that point where you have a range of different models, but also women with varied experiences, I think that she's had such a comprehensive view 
of the different agencies and bodies that are instrumental in the formation of, of U.S. foreign policy. And the other, um, I have many, but the other person that I want to mention as a role model is Ambassador Gina uh, Abercrombie Wing Stanley. Simply because while my sort of area of expertise now is really Sub-Saharan Africa, I started off um, with uh, areas of specialization, at least academically, in the Middle East. And so, sort of the, the regional geek in me is just amazed at the career that she was able to have, particularly as a foreign service officer, sticking in one particular region of the world. So. Thank you. Anyone else like to share their role model or their journey story? I think the journey is as equally as important as your, um, as a role model. I'll share. Of course, I'm not in the field of international relations or foreign policy or anything like that. People are wondering, like, why is this space person on the battle? <laughs> but, um, but I have several role models. But of course, you all are familiar with the history of And so I am clear that if it were not for them, I would not have been able to have the amazing opportunities I've had for 22 years in the field of space exploration. What they were able to do in the face of no agreement is just truly, and and still maintain excellence, you know, and hold their head up and move forward is just <clears throat> truly inspiring. And so I did not I did not know about those three. I knew about them actually before the story came out, but not long before that. But there was a fourth hidden figure who was my role model when I entered NASA back in 1992 that I knew of. She was one of the most senior um, African-Americans at the agency that was just truly, I was blown away by her journey. But you know, space is about peace. At least the work we do at NASA is all about the peaceful uses of space. And especially now with the use of satellites growing and bringing developing countries into the conversation of space like that was always my passion. And having a diversity of voices from around the world, from countries where people were of color, in the conversation on space exploration, access to space and peaceful uses of space. And I knew that could only happen through education, and so that's why I founded my foundation 11 years ago, to really educate. I focus on young women, because we really need more young women in these fields. But to educate young people around the world to not be afraid of the sciences of engineering because I knew that was gonna be the conduit for their countries to get into the space of space exploration. So even though you know, I'm not directly involved in international relations, space really is all about, um, and the use of satellites for development is really a big deal. It absolutely is. So I, I would echo all these, the, the wonderful women that these women have pointed to. But I just wanted to lift up my boss because, as you said, I honestly didn't see myself in, you know, as having a special voice or a special place within the decision making within the organization or on the issues. But it was my boss, Alice Walker Duff, and she was um, <laughs> she was the managing director of Bread for the Worlds until last summer, and she was really first of all she was such a good mentor to me. She really just every time made made 
a space for me to speak up. And I oftentimes have, I'm one of the quiet, have the quietest voices around the table in our management team. And Alice would just push me to speak louder. And so I think I've become a bit better, better at that. <laughs> but she was also, she taught me a lot about how to, uh, she was very intentional in the five years that she was at Bread for the World to really diversify the organization. And she brought on quite a diversity of women. And she made, helped me understand that you really have to be intentional about it. You have to be willing to say, okay, well, this person may not have quite the experience, the level of experience that we need, but we can bring them in, but clearly they have potential. Bring them in because we need that diversity of perspective. And I think, you know, it was really important for me to hear, you know, to, to hear it broken down that way. And I was very fortunate. I mean, I sort of, by accident, fell into my various positions. But, you know, I've always been conscious that I was quite fortunate. And so now, as I, and she helped me think about how I can extend that to other people as well. And what a responsibility that we have in the positions that we are to really encourage other women and women of color in, in their jobs and really help build their experience so that they too can advance in their position. Thank you for your, all of your responses, Ken. Do you have more in? Yeah, I, um, I agree. I mean, many of the women you guys have already mentioned uh, are on my list as well, including, of course, Ambassador Jenkins. Um, but I, I talk about hidden figures. I also want to highlight, and I'm sure any of us can relate to that. My mom, obviously, is a role model. Uh, and, and several reasons for that. But basically, it's going back to the discussion we had earlier about being emphatic and then using that as a strength. And then also learning how to be humble, but at the same time be confident. And that is a tricky balance sometimes. But she has led the way and she keeps doing it, so I just wanted to mention that, as I'm sure, like I said before, a lot of you could probably relate to that. But also, as I have a cousin who moved to the States, so my family immigrated to Norway because that's logical when you come from the Philippines. <laughs> but a lot of my other family members immigrated to the States directly. I sort of made a pit stop in Norway. And my cousin, she came here, and I don't remember how many, I think she, it was less than a year she was here, before she, and then she enlisted in the U.S. Navy. And she, was, she came here, served 20 years for a country that was, you know, in, in many ways, completely new to her. And through seeing her do that and, and just, I mean, we have a lot of veterans in the room, so I don't have to you know, talk about the sacrifices, but for me to see that and to live that as a family member and to see the strength, especially considering the fact that this is not the country she, she grew up in, that um, level of strength is something that I absolutely find valuable, not just you know, obviously on a personal level, but going back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of different models of leadership, how that strength can be utilized and applied in different ways is, I think, uh, one of the biggest reasons that my cousin is also one of my biggest reforms. Wonderful, thank you. 
thank all of you ladies for sharing the people that helped inspire you on your journey. And as you look to provide um, leadership to other young women, what is some of the advice you would give them if they want to choose a career in foreign policy, peace, security, and conflict transformation? Follow your passion. And don't, you know, don't shut out all the voices around you that may be naysayers, because we often have those. We have people who support us too, but definitely finding your passion, following your passion, and being determined and focused and tenacious, but most importantly, believing in yourself, right? Because when nobody else believes in you, your belief in yourself is what is going to carry you through. That's always my advice to you. Anyone else want to weigh in on that? Sure. To, to Joanne's point um, about being humble but, but confident, I think a lesson that I, if I could go back in time, would tell um, my younger self is build your confidence early and don't doubt yourself as much. I think that women tend to, I guess I can't generalize, but many women, myself included, have this tendency to think, Hmm, okay, well, if there is a job description that I'm really, really, am, I'm really excited about, and there are six different requirements. Okay, well, I have four and a half. I'm not really sure if I'm qualified for this. Maybe I should look, at, look for something else. The one thing that I, I would say about that is that there are many of your male counterparts who do not have those doubts. They might say, oh, okay, I have two, but I'm going to go <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so definitely build your confidence early. And one thing that I found particularly helpful is the advice of, of one of my colleagues who is a fellow Congressional Black Caucus Foundation alumna, Yushia Berry. She told me a couple of years ago, make sure that you get everything that you need out of a role or out of an experience before you look for that next thing. You never want to have a feeling that, oh, you know, maybe I should have stayed a little longer. Or maybe I could have learned, for example, coming from the Hill, I could have learned more about the legislative or the appropriations process. So make sure that you take the time to reflect and understand what it is that you need out of a role before you start to look for, for something else. Some very, very good advice. Can we just chime in also and just tell somebody to go for it and, and to speak up? I think that's one of the things I think in, in diplomatic circles also, I'm just thinking about sitting around a table often being the only woman at the table, especially in counterterrorism and security and sometimes being on the younger side and then and hedging. I find myself hedging at least since the beginning of my career. Oh, well, they have more experience, different experiences, they probably know better. And it's often people, they might have much more experience, but you might have a different perspective, and your perspective and your opinion is always just as valid. And to touch on your question about role models, I will always, I just have to give a big plug for Secretary Albright. She was somebody who, when I was, as a young teenager, saw her as the first female Secretary of State and leading us around the world. And I will never forget, even before that, when she was the UN, and um, she threw out the word cojones in the UN. <laughs> and, you know, and that's, it was, she just said it with, and just kept on going. It was just part of her lexicon in that particular speech. But she didn't blink an eye. And, like, she was somebody who would walk into a room and would just could negotiate with the best of them and, and politely and do it, you know, respectfully, but also always get her 
point across and never let somebody intimidate you. And I think, especially if I, like going back in your point of telling my younger self and definitely younger women today, I just go for it. I mean, there's no reason that you don't have just as much to offer as anybody else in the room, and nobody should be telling you or making you feel otherwise. So piggyback on what Janelle said, I think that, that piece of advice around making sure you get the most out of your experience is so important. On the flip side, though, know when to leave. Absolutely. And <laughs> I'm not, I don't think those are, you know, it, right, but I think that is something that, you know, I would say slash don't make yourself a martyr. And that's something that I wish I told my younger self. And it's especially difficult if you're the only one in the room because sometimes you realize everything that you're carrying and representing when you come into that room, and so you hold on longer than you should, or maybe longer than is best for your overall well-being, and that can be detrimental as well. So knowing that it's okay to make a graceful exit, I have friends right now that are in different parts of the peace and security world that are struggling with that simply because it is no longer good for them to be there, but they struggle with the idea that if they leave the room, they're not sure who's going to represent the equities that they represent. But I'm going to ask the panel to think about a final question, and then I'm going to, while they think about it, I'm going to ask for if there are any questions from anyone in the room, because we have some very dynamic women up here, and I don't want to monopolize all the time. And, um, but as we're getting questions from the floor, if you could think about what is the advice you would give WCAPs in this space? How can we move forward to help do some of the things that you talked about here on the panel today to increase those numbers and, in, and, and inclusion of women of color? So are there any questions? Yes, ma'am. Could you please tell us who you are and where you work when you ask your question? Thank you. My name is Bumia Kinsentu. I am not working. Uh, but I, uh, I am a former Obama appointee um, at the EPA. And in my sabbatical for the last 12 months, I started a podcast called What in the World? And Asha was on the show. Yeah. Um, and it attempts to make foreign policy understandable and relevant to regular people outside of this bubble we call Washington, D.C. And so my question for the panel and really Ambassador Jenkins and the audience is, this is wonderful. Like My heart was like pounding with joy sitting here. Um, but I think about my family. I think about the folks out in Southeast. I think about people on the South Side of Chicago, in Houston, Texas, in LA, we're in the middle of America. They're not thinking about this embassy that we just moved to <laughs> Jerusalem. They don't see how that is relevant to their life when they're struggling with gun violence, when they're struggling with health issues, when they're struggling with education. So my question, and I still struggle with this with the show, is how do you take what we know in our minds to be very interconnected issues to like domestic life, how do we take that and take the power of the people in this room to make it relevant to people who are dealing with very real issues here at home? That's an awesome question. Anybody want to tackle that one? I can just, I don't have a perfect answer, but for me, this art in the room is an example of how I, I guess my, my soul wants to try to bridge that gap. Because it is the distance from Washington to Norway to the Philippines or to my family that's sitting there thinking about how you get your next bottle of whatever, medication or food or whatnot, is when I talk about, as much as I would love to talk about infectious diseases and the threat of, you know, global pandemics and whatnot, at the end of the day, that is far, far away from their day-to-day 
priorities. And so I think this art is just an example, I guess, of perhaps a communication channel that helps convey the, the core messages behind it, but that sort of filters out all of the, maybe the textbook material that I'm, you know, I'm still paying back. So maybe we have to think about the innovation part of how to communicate these messages. I would say uh, I always try to connect it to how it impacts the constituency with regards to moving the, the uh, you know, the uh, embassy. What comes along with this is instability, right, and potential violence, right? There's a consensus, don't do that. Well, how does that impact us? Well, we have so many diplomats, service members, especially service members that look like me, that are serving out there, right, in, in places like in Africa, right, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, okay? They're being pulled out of there districts to go in and serve in these areas. So when, you, when the government makes a decision like that, you know, it can impact their security. And that hits us back here at home. And a lot of people are not from Washington, D.C. They come from all over the, the nation, right? So that's where we have to connect it to. That's also another thing, too, the way to connect it. It's our taxpayer money, right? Mm -hmm. If a lot of it's going into defense right now, right, then we're going to want to know, okay, moving forward, what is the strategic plan that helps us get credible results that helps with our national security. A lot of our taxpayers' money is going towards that. Especially after this tax reform bill, a lot of it, more of it is going towards to help a, a big, robust defense plan. So we have to like figure out a way on how to connect it, but for the most part, in terms of service members, diplomats, aid workers, we're all out there in those areas where when, when the government makes decisions like that, that impacts our security while we're in those places. Just build, building off that, Bread for the World works on both domestic and global hunger issues at the same time. And, and there is a tension. You know, people are thinking, why are we investing overseas when we've got hunger issues here at home? But I think, you know, especially when we talk about women's issues, women of, women of color in this country are disproportionately affected by hunger and poverty and women around the world are disproportionately affected by hunger and poverty. There are, and we, we live in a time when there's rising inequality everywhere, including in this country, dramatic. So I think there are ways to talk about the issues globally and the issues here in ways that people can relate to. I mean, if you're hungry, whether it's here in the US or around the world, you're less likely, you're more likely to have health issues. You're less likely to be able to hold down a job, be productive, you know, learn quite as well as other people. And so I think there's a way of, of building solidarity and understanding of the issues. And now with the Sustainable Development Goals, it's a global, it's a universal agenda. And it's, I think we're not used to thinking about you know, those kinds of goals here in the U.S. And there's a challenges in how to talk about and translate those goals to the U.S. But basically, it's about a decent life for everyone, no matter where they live. And I mean, I think people can, from Brett's experience, people are somewhat more sympathetic to hunger overseas than they are to hunger issues here, which is, sometimes striking. But I think the, uh, the, the idea of you know, creating a, a world where everyone has basic, a decent life is something everyone can relate to. And so there's an opportunity with the SDGs to really begin to connect the dots.
but but that's it's it's going to take a lot of effort. So you know, going back to the question that you want us to think about, do you want to go to go there already? <laughs> no, I was thinking, you know, the the challenges is that we face now, both in the US and, and globally are multi-dimensional, multifaceted. There are no single bullets to any of the major challenges that we face. And I think women are particularly suited to think. We multitask all the time. And and because we face multi-dimensions, uh, we, we, we have experienced things in multi-dimensional ways. So I would encourage us to all think about, especially thinking about the younger generation, how to think in these multi-sectoral, cross-cutting ways. And because we do it in our day-to-day -day lives all the time, I think you know, in terms of the way we're taught and in disciplines, we are too siloed. And I think there's an opportunity just by this community to start to break down some of those silos, including domestic and global. The only thing I would add to your question, as a, an, I lead an organization that straddles the same fence on disasters and disease outbreaks, they affect every country. But I, I would encourage us to not assume that the answers to the problems in the US are inherently American. Mm -hmm. And so if we kind of break out of that box a little bit and start to look at the problems that are in Baltimore or in Southeast or anywhere else. Honestly, look at look at the Gulf Coast, right? So the part of the country that is most prone to seeing a catastrophic disaster or disease outbreak every year is also one of the poorest and with the worst health outcomes. But guess where a lot of people of color live? In those same communities. Chances are what we've been doing is not going to work because we've been doing it and it hasn't worked. So maybe it's possible <laughs> that there are solutions that are beyond our borders. And that is sometimes hard for us to wrap our minds around. But when we look at our relationship with other countries as an exchange and not just a donation, it may change the conversation a little bit. Can I challenge just one Okay. Not? We're going to have to start wrapping up because sure. I'm getting excited. I'm going home. <laughs> <laughs> that was the side wrap up. I just wanted to add something. Okay. I'm sorry. Okay. I just wanted to say one thing on um, from a State Department perspective, again, as a just a private employee there. <laughs> <laughs> also a challenge that we have. Many people don't know that we can't necessarily you know, market ourselves domestically. We are congressionally and we have some limitations on what we can do within the United States. Our mandate is overseas and so it does become a struggle to sometimes explain and translate as you know the panelists were saying what we're doing abroad and how that directly does impact what we're doing here at home and we have sometimes an underutilized programs called hometown diplomats and uh, we can go back into whatever you know community we're from and kind of explain our work and especially in schools and or to a local newspaper get some coverage and so that people realize that you know with your family and your friends at this embassy that might be you know and these conversations are happening it's like this could be your neighbor. This could be, you know, there are direct impacts. Right? I'm from small town Kentucky and going home for Thanksgiving. <laughs> um, and you're going home for Thanksgiving, they're like, oh, you're from the State Department. That's awesome. Which state?
there's a lot of education left to do in a lot of these sessions. Yes, ma'am. I'll be very brief. And in response to your question about um, recommendations for, for WCAP, I think there are a lot of activities that are already sort of underway, which is great. I was really excited to hear outreach to, to HBCUs, hopefully other universities as well, because to your point, I think that just exposing more young people to not only the typical sorts of foreign policy roles in terms of State Department or, or DOD, no offense to State or DOD, um, <laughs> I think is useful because I used to complain about this when I was in when I was in graduate school. I have a public policy degree. Not very many people know what that is or what you do with it, and I had to do the research myself in order to, um, I knew ultimately what I wanted to do, but I had to do the research myself to figure out how to get there. And if you don't have role models or you don't have the opportunity to actually see people that look like you or with similar experiences to you doing these sorts of things, you can easily get discouraged. So I'm very excited about that. And I think one thing that is also useful for, for this organization in particular is to do things like the podcasts or blogs or having brain trusts even to come together and whether it is writing about sort of the overlap between uh, some of the areas as, as Asma mentioned, to contribute to some of the policy debates that are already going on in Washington and further afield, I think is critical just in making sure that a variety of voices are heard. Well, thank you. Any other questions from the floor? Um, good evening. Thank you so much, ladies. My name is Amber Whittington, and I'm with USAID, and I'm also the Vice President of Deprenationals at AID. I would love to hear our panelists talk about bridging the generational gap and also bridging the race gap with other women. Um, sometimes I've noticed as a millennial woman, sometimes it's difficult. Know, um, I wear nails and stuff like that. And it's kind of like <laughs> serious, you know. So stuff like that, bridging, bridging that, bridging that race gap, and then also bridging that generation gap. Anybody want to take that one? I think it's really important, and especially, especially the um, the age gap or generation gap, because. We've got experience, we've been through a lot. Um, I'm speaking for myself. And so I think there's a lot, A, that I can learn from the younger generation. There are things I really don't know. And B, I've got a lot to share. And, and I think that mentorship, that relationship is really important, especially for women and women of color especially because there aren't that many of us there, and I think it's really important for us to be there for each other. I think that's a very good point as far as bridging between the older and younger generation in terms of women. I would say my experience with that has been kind of satisfaction, you know, it's not okay. And, uh, but the one thing I would love to see is more older women sponsoring younger women in front of their male colleagues. Okay, <laughs> I don't see where that's a confident choice at times, but I don't understand why they're so afraid to do that. But I do see moving forward, being more progressive, more and more women are doing that, and I think that definitely needs to be continued. And it's a great way to break through the barriers, and it also gives you the respect about your work as far as why is she being sponsored by a woman that has 
that's well established. We need more of that. I see a lot of males doing that all the time. I've seen well established men sponsor younger men that don't deserve it. <laughs> and they and because of that they get ahead quicker than women that definitely need that. They're they're same, you know, generation but don't get that sponsorship. But those males they move forward quicker than women because those females do not get mentorship or sponsorship. I think the race gap is harder. Yeah. Um, in part because one, so something really strange happened. Um, so my organization responds to disasters. So, <coughs> and one of the things that I heard from one of uh, my board members who is preparing for retirement in the next five years or so, she in the middle of a conversation just said, I feel like my generation has failed you all. And she started apologizing and saying she didn't think that her generation, just her perspective, but she didn't think that her generation worked hard enough to make sure that they were bringing the generation behind them along. And when they had less to lose, like, you know, right before you're getting ready to retire, really fighting and forcing you know, the door open to make sure that the generation coming behind them had an easier time than they did. And I think when you have folks that get it or that see it or maybe feel like they have less to lose because they're established, maybe that's an opportunity that they're willing to, to, to take on. Something that has I have about a 50% success rate with is just asking people that I think might be receptive to serve as a champion for me. And the worst they can say is no. But sometimes they say, I wouldn't have even thought about that, or why, why do you think you need a champion? That's often the question that, that comes after that. And just explain it. I think sometimes that has to be on an individual level, and it's, it's more difficult as a culture shift. Um, I think the race gap, in some ways, I think it's also tied to the generational gap. Um, I was at the NSC earlier today, and it was very white. And the reason that that jumped out to me was because we were actually talking about issues of vulnerable communities and disease outbreak risk. And there were, and it was homogeneous in a way that was concerning. And from my vantage point, all I can do is be there and suggest to them that maybe some other folks should be there. But it, it ultimately is up to individuals who are not me to make those invitations and to make that decision, but continuing to raise it and raise it in, in ways with friends and, and colleagues that are trusted that kind of help to, to bring, ask those questions, it might work, but I think sometimes asking the question does help. Yeah, you want to weigh in on that as well? Yeah, I just, so I, I grew up in, in Norway, uh, which uh, has a pretty hom homogeneous population as well, especially back then, more so than now. My advice would be to make sure that, I mean, we've talked about finding people who have, you know, share your interests and who can mentor you, and while that is absolutely important, it's equally as important to find the people who absolutely disagree with you on a lot of things. Uh, and I say that because I had to go through 20 years of my life where I was trying to figure out who I was, putting, trying to put myself in racial boxes, ethnic boxes, all kinds of boxes that absolutely did not fit my profile at all. I just had to create my own thing. But, the, but in, in going through that journey, I realized that the reason I'm able to, I would say now, successfully navigate a lot of cultures is because of that, because I've been in, learned from people who I 
absolutely don't necessarily, you know, well, don't necessarily agree uh, with on, on a lot of things. But it can be as simple as, you know, how you do your nails or, or how you do, you know, all kinds of other things. But it's, it's important to find out why other people think certain aspects of life are important to them or why they're not important. I think only then can you really start to have those really hardcore discussions about, you know, all these other topics because otherwise you will have that filter and that filter will just say that person disagrees with you and therefore I consider that person either not as smart, not as wise, not as this, not as that. Um, but when you know or understand that, well, that particular topic is of interest to that person or isn't because of whatever experiences they have. And I think that, that's, that's when you can start bridging that race gap, for example. That is not an easy task. And I've had that internal conflict in myself. And so um, that, that would be my, my advice. I would also add, you know, take my executive I think she's alluded to it a little bit, but it's also culturally, we're not all the same. Mm -hmm. And you, sometimes it may means you have to be a little bit more vulnerable and expose yourself a little bit more. And sometimes when I introduce my, myself to people, I tell them I am Crystal James, I'm from rural Georgia. <laughs> I grew up in a town that has less than 3,000 people in it. And it kind of puts people in context of what my experience may be and not necessarily put me in the same box with another African-American woman sitting next to me who may have grown up in New York with 3,000 people in her building. <laughs> I mean, you just, we're not going to view the world the same way. Our lens is going to be completely different. And sometimes exposing and making yourself a little bit more vulnerable in your introduction or in the, in the way you interact with people will allow you to find what, the, what things are common. People who may not even look like you that you never thought, oh, you from a rural place too? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you have things to connect on that are outside of those things that are creating barriers. Ambassador Jenkins had a question. No, that's okay. I think you should wrap up because I'll, I'll answer the question that was asked earlier. Okay, we're going to take one more question from the floor. Actually, it's actually a, it was a question, then it's now time to do a suggestion. Um, <laughs> and, uh, K-12 education. And oftentimes, um, when we think about this type of environment, um, that to me tends to be the forgotten. We think about, oh, we need to get them when they're in college, we need to get them to college. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not my current role, I don't want to do disclaimers, so I'm not going to say I'm my current role, but previous <laughs> role, I worked at an all girls 612 school in Atlanta, Georgia, in Bankhead. And we had some phenomenal, brilliantly girls with one and two babies who should be at Georgia Tech and who should be, but you don't. You don't know that. And so when I think about that and I think about these different roles, I'm sitting here like, wow, these women are fabulous. <laughs> but, and I'm 44 and I'm learning. This is all new to me as an educator. So I think when you talk about what you all need to do, it's reaching the children younger. And that's partially the answer to your question too, is education, but education earlier on. So if I'm in the class, and I'm teaching you something, then what's the connection to this tax budget? What's going on? And I just remember growing up every week, we had to do a weekly article, current events, we had to write about it, turn it in each week, and it kept me current. So the piece to that is what's in place for teachers who impact these students' lives? They're the, the, the most impactful in their lives to get this information. And so I think about what are the internships for that math science, um, technology teacher that can know about these different fields so that they can help impact 
these students in that K-12 environment. Um, in addition to, I mean, I know that George Tech has a gift program that they do, but when I think about who gets accepted to the gift program, because I know we had a teacher apply three years in a row, African-American woman, and she didn't get into that gift program at Georgia Tech. But I think about as women of color, what can you do in this aspect to help get the teachers educated so that they can educate the children? And the College of Career Advisors. Like, you're talking about foreign policy? Yeah. I don't know what, what yeah. you do. <laughs> what is foreign policy? You know, so I think if you get to the educators, you get to the children. Thank you, that's a great thing. Uh, no, I just wanted to put out there that I think an excellent program is Model UN. I have a lot of... Model UN? I'm yeah. nothing against Model UN. <laughs> I, you know, I don't see the HBCUs, to be quite honest with you. I didn't. You did it? That's great, that's great. But I think Model UN is definitely going to open up the eyes of foreign policy and national security at a younger uh, age. But that's oftentimes an additional program, yeah. something that's after school, you still got to work, They've got other things that they have to do. And so yes. if you think about that, we have to think about the low and no income students, these homeless children, the foster kids, you know, those are the ones that's honestly that's the most impactful because they want to change their lives, they want to change their lives. They don't know another way because that's not the way they grew up. That's their uh, so that that's just not that what they know. And so when I think about it, I think it's beyond a program. I think it's a change in a mindset. So that's, to me, long term. Mm -hmm. And so I love Model UN. And we've had some, well, our school doesn't have it, just that we cannot get the kids to stay after school because transportation. They got to get on the bus after school. Mm -hmm. So it's just, when you think about these things, with in, having internships for students in the summer, paid, they got to get paid. They need the money, mm -hmm. you know, and you're providing lunch for them. They come to school for breakfast and lunch. So just to think about all those different aspects that is affecting our students, and it's not just low income. We've got working class families whose kids, they can't afford to pay bills and eat and all these different things. Just a very quick two finger on that. I think that is an excellent point to make for mentorship, and I know that there are a range of different programs that do sort of in-school mentorship sessions. I don't know how that would work in the case of some of your students, but where they bring in members of the community to just sit during a lunch period, right? And they have, if not one child, then they might have multiple children who they talk to on a regular basis. And I think this network could provide a number of mentors in, in a similar sort of situation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And on that note, I think we should move on. We want to talk with the young massacre that they need to think about. Thank you, ladies, all so very much for your presence. Thank you for joining Women of Color, Advancing Peace and Security. Please visit WCAPS.org. That's W-C-A-P-S dot org. Thank you.